Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Now, last week, ladies and gentlemen, we were involved through the looking glass in Alice in Wonderland world surrounding the strange case of Stan Romanek. And we thought after living in an insane world, for two hours, we had to try to approach sanity again. And one of the sanest people we know, of course, is Matt Tonys, who's an author, a researcher, and he's covered twin subjects that we deal with. One, of course, is Mars exploration, Mars mysteries, and the other being his investigations into UFOs and the theory about crypto terrestrials that UFOs come from maybe the Earth. But, of course, we're talking, Mac, about so many of the things being done about Mars, and it's nice to see that Mars exploration, space exploration on the front pages of our newspapers these days, and the fact that with a few minor glitches, this new Mars exploration, checking the poles and the ice caps at Mars, may be doing something productive. What's the intent of this probe? Well, the intent is to analyze the, the soil for not life directly like the Viking probes did back in the, in the mid-70s, but to check the soil for, uh, you know, traces of organic chemistry to see if the soil was once hospitable to life, and um, which is great. It's, it's the closest to, it's the best we've done since the Viking probes, but I'm personally dissatisfied. I mean, it's a, I'm, I'm excited, naturally, because, like you said, it's on the front pages. It's nice to have Mars exploration in the in the public public uh, domain like that for Sam Small. It's been a while since we've had something exciting happen. But I wish these things were testing directly for life. I wish these things were testing uh, the soil for actual metabolic processes, uh, but they're not. And, you know, we were doing that in the mid-70s, so that's kind of, it's kind of disheartening. Well, it's kind of, you can kind of draw the analogy to, you know, getting back to the moon. You know, you can, we can put a man on the moon, so why can't we put a man on the moon, that kind of thing. You know, we put these, we put a, you know, a labeled release experiment on the Martian surface in 1976. And, you know, it's now 2008, and I would have liked to have thought that uh, we'd be doing that sort of thing. What's the line of demarcation here? Because I think there's confusion over precisely what this particular Mars probe can do. So it can't find life, it can only look at chemistry. Right, but I and, and NASA's honest about that, but I think they like to play the angle where they're looking for life. That's kind of been the, the standby line of JPL, the search for life on Mars. And they're doing that, but in an indirect sense, and it's better than nothing. And, you know, it's nice to have a it's nice to have a mission examine the Martian North Pole, which we've never done before. But at the same time it's 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 looking at the soil for um signs that it was once hospitable or habitable to life and um, uh, it's, it's not looking for actual microbes in the soil right now well that's and, an important point here say there is some kind of microbial life and I'm right. amazed I can even say that word without stumbling if there is life it wouldn't see it would it no it would not it would find some organic chemicals perhaps it would find it would probably return return data that would indicate that Mars is fairly friendly to life but it wouldn't find the life itself. So if a Martian came up to this craft and well, it wasn't photographed physically, it couldn't do anything about it. 
That's that's my understanding. Yeah, I'm not a biochemist, but no, this this probe is equipped with the, with the laboratory, uh, unlike the unlike the rovers, which didn't have any sort of light detection at all. This thing actually does analyze the soil, like the Viking probes. It scoops up some soil, it dumps it, and heats it up. It cooks it, and it analyzes the gases that come out. And that's a good step. And it wouldn't have taken that much more to make that instrument suite uh, a bit more robust to actually search for existing organisms in the soil. I mean, this thing is drilling, after all, underneath the surface into the ice. And that's a pretty good place to expect um, some form of, of, of very hardy microbial life. And I wish, I wish, I wish the designers had put a little more, a little more uh, emphasis on that. Well, I guess we're criticizing the University of Arizona, which is not the school that my son went to. So let's criticize them anyway. Okay, now they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to have this probe go to Mars, and it takes months and months and months to get there. What would it have meant to add this extra stuff? Was it doable? Was it just a few more million? Or did they have to have this limit, hard limit, as to how far this probe can go in terms of conducting research? Well, the mission is considered a scout mission, and basically that is cheap. They want to get as many more probes cheaper. They'd like they'd like to populate the surface of Mars with as many as many probes as they can without spending a huge portion portion and putting all their eggs in one basket. So I can appreciate that. But but if you're going to land a probe, it seems to me if you're going to land a probe on the on, on the polar terrain where you know there's frozen water ice right below the surface, and indeed it looks like we've already found quite a bit of it exposed right there underneath the where the retro rockets burned. If you, if you know that you're going to land somewhere, you know promising. You know, might it be worth putting those extra instruments on board? Because, you know, as I mentioned, we've already got the um, a little laboratory set up there. It's got a little cooker and everything else. You know, I I think they probably it's just my opinion that they should have gone ahead with that. And uh, you know, some people have, have have kind of waxed a little bit conspiratorial on on you know why they didn't why they didn't go the extra mile and, and add something they could detect the um, extent. Conspiratorial in what respect? Well, like, uh, you know, why why aren't they telling us? You know, I mean, you, the kind of thing like, oh, kind of like the whole face on Mars thing. Well, NASA must know already, and, and it's some sort of time release thing. I honestly think that it's a little little more benign than that. I think that uh, the prospect of, of finding life on Mars is considered kind of, I don't want to say inevitable, but highly likely by by people within the NASA structure. But you have all these different all these different centers sparring for grants, and so much of the Mars exploration timetable has already been drafted that it forces me to wonder if there's a bit of uh, if they're postponing it. You know, if they're trying to get as many missions and, and milk milk the funding that that exists on these various um, less spectacular missions and kind of putting the ultimate search for, for living living organisms on Mars on the back burner for uh, a future time. But uh, here's the thing. I mean, Mac, if they sent up a mission and found definitive proof of the existence of life on Mars... That would change everything. Wouldn't that, well, but wouldn't that actually vastly increase the amount of funding they would get for subsequent missions? Well, that comes back to the whole kind of the schizophrenic uh, nature of the, of the NASA structure. You know, it's not just a single entity. It's all these little different entities, all of which are responsible for different aspects of space exploration. And one argument that I've heard is that if we found life on Mars, and this was back in the context of, of 
of addressing the, the Cydonia anomalies and other features like that otherwise, but it would also hold true very much for um, microbial life, germs. Uh, if we found life on Mars in, in whatever context, it would probably emphasize the need for manned exploration. And mm -hmm. in that case, Johnson Space Flight Center, which is devoted to manned space flight, would probably find itself with more funds uh, diverted from other projects. I don't think it's terribly conspiratorial or terribly unrealistic to suggest that, that some of the scientists involved with the current Mars research paradigm are, are committed to analyzing geology and soil chemistry at the exclusion of life because they're a little worried in the back of their minds collectively, maybe not even consciously, that if life were detected, um, their own research expertise would take a backseat to someone else's. And, you know, that's, I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe someone could shoot that down. Well, that's just but, politics, of course. Yes, I think that there's a great deal of politics involved with, it, with a question like this. Yes, it's all about the money. Boy, that's enough to drive you crazy if you're interested in this stuff. And you want to see us move forward. It's just enough to drive you nuts. Now, Mac, I have to mention there was something on your wonderful blog, This, uh, I think it was this last week that you posted, that photo of Phoenix coming down with the parachute. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What a crazy picture. That's a first. <laughs> could, you, could you explain that for people who don't know what we're talking about? Well, it's... It was an actual picture, and some of the some of the pictures, disappointingly, are are like kind of low quality. But the cleaned up image is actually pretty clear. It's a picture of the Phoenix shell and the parachute. What we're looking at is the actual craft with the parachute descending through the Martian atmosphere at high speeds, taken from orbit by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And I don't know if you guys have seen the big version, the panoramic version or not. Have you seen no. the one with the crater in the background? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's yeah, what I have. That's, yeah, the yeah. One, that's the one that really I think is breathtaking. Uh, there's the close-up, which is neat enough, but you know, it basically looks like a little tiny, tiny drawing or something, a little sketched-out design of the spacecraft. But the, but the panoramic picture with this big, massive crater in the background really puts it in perspective. And the fact oh, that the fact that we have a probing orbiter on Mars, well, not just one, but this is the one that actually took a picture of this happening, kind of pounds home the fact that we have an actual robotic presence there. So yeah, it was an amazing, amazing picture and very. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting anything like that. Yeah, let's let's go back maybe in time here for the benefit of listeners who didn't hear the first time we had you on, where we talked about Martian mysteries, and maybe let's put this in perspective. Now, early on, and this goes back to not that many years ago, we believed there were canals on Mars. Of mm -hmm. course, you know, that therefore maybe that's the remnants of an ancient civilization. It goes back to the science fiction stories of John Carter on Mars by the late Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, for the benefit of those who didn't hear the shows, let's kind of cover this stuff very briefly and have the overview very briefly. Why did we think there were canals on Mars? Well, there are lots of lots of uh, details on the Martian surface that, from a distance, it turns out that your mind tends to, the human mind tends to uh, connect different. Like I'm looking at a map of Mars, actually, it's over my desk right now, and actually, a psychological experiment. You know, with the dark areas on Mars, the different features. If you're if you're looking at it through a poor enough telescope, you, you'll tend to kind of connect disparate features in your, in your mind's eye, kind of connect, play this connect the dots game, especially if you're predisposed to wanting to see, you know, linear features on Mars. 
So it all started with Percival Lowell, an astronomer, who became convinced that there were canals on Mars and that they were intelligently created by a Martian civilization that was trying to channel water from the polar caps to what was obviously a very dry world to the equatorial cities. And you mentioned Eddie Rice Burroughs. He took that exact idea and ran with it, and that was his model of Mars or his Mars novels, very fanciful. Um, of course, when we got up close and looked at it with uh, better telescopes and then the Mariner flyby missions and then Viking, it's obvious that there are no canals. There are some very interesting features, to be sure, but no canals, unfortunately. So that's kind of a brief history of the canals. There are some fascinating geological and, you know, huge. There's the Ballas Marineris Trench, which is, uh, you know, like a, I think it's the size of Texas or something like that, but it's just this immense gash in the, in the terrain. So I mean, there are there are indeed you know large, weird features on Mars. It's the stuff you don't get on Earth because well, for one thing, Mars doesn't have plate tectonics, no canals. That uh -huh. doesn't rule out artificial structures entirely. There could be maybe, and that's something I'm interested in. Well, let's take a look at that in a second. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog. The world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. We're talking to Mac Tonys, and he's a Mars expert and also a UFO investigator, and we're talking about Martian mysteries uh, and private uh, fact. Uh, 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 he's a transhumanist. <laughs> you know, well, you're, you're insulting the man. He's a transhumanist. Okay, I'm not sure about Mars expert either. Okay, well, he's a well, transhumanist. Okay. He's a transhumanist and and one of the leading lights 
in the era of new considerations in the realm of the paranormal. So let's just get it straight, okay? Okay, so let's now go to stage two. And All stage right. two, of course, we start hearing about the face on Mars. Okay, so... Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Wait, no, stop, stop. The phone's ringing. I think it's a drunk Richard Hoagland. <laughs> and he wants to speak to, to, to Mac. Should we let him on? Absolutely not. All right, forget it. Sorry. Hold on. Mr. Hoagland, forget about it. Last off, Richard. Go back to your little like, weird... I don't think Hoagland is. I think that could be probably his his shill, Mike Barra. He'd probably be the guy to... No, no, to he's drunk. Him. It's him. No, it's him. I've got a video phone thing here that we're both beta testing. That's right. I can see his face. Such as it is. Right. Okay, so where did this face on Mars thing come about? What's the story behind it? Uh, the face on Mars is kind of an interesting history. It, it first showed up in image from the Viking on the Viking orbiters that weirdly enough, coincidentally enough, were launched on my birthday, August 20, 1975. Hmm. Anyway, they go up there. They, they, they're just taking you know routine pictures of the planet. And a guy named Jerry Soffin is looking at the data spread out on his table and saw this little, you know, this little thing looked like a face. He brought it to to the attention of his coworkers, and it was actually mentioned at a what's the term press conference. And uh, it was basically it was dismissed. Uh, the guy who made the the announcement. No, I'm sorry, the discovery. The guy named Toby Owen was the one who discovered the face. Jerry Soffin had the was the guy at the press conference. Anyway, he mentioned that, you know, it was a curiosity, it was interesting, but that another photograph taken hours, a couple hours later, I think he said a couple hours later, showed that under different lighting, you know, there's nothing there. There's nothing to see here. So people promptly forgot about it. A bit later, a couple of researchers, uh, Vincent DiPietro and Greg Molinar, um, uh, went back and out of curiosity, they started looking through the NASA files, and they uncovered, well, they realized that what Jerry Soffin said about it a couple hours later was totally wrong because the probe would have been on the other side of the planet, for one thing, and there was no second disconfirming photo, as uh, Soffin kind of led the public to believe. I mean, I don't think Soffin was doing anything. I don't think he was trying to, trying to lie. I think he made the assumption that I think it came out wrong. I think a lot of people have tried to kind of accuse accuse uh, NASA of, of trying to pull some strange X-Files move like that. In which case, why would you even mention it to begin with? You know, if you, if you thought you had some sort of hard evidence of, of extraterrestrial intelligence, which certainly, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, come to that conclusion from looking at a little baby face-like thing on a, a Viking tape anyway. Let's make a long story short. Um, Vincent DiPietro and Molinar, they, they went and found what, not only did they, did they realize that there was no disconfirming image that, that obliterated the face, there, but there was another image taking days later uh, from a different sun angle that also showed the face. The face still looked like a face, even at different lighting. You, you couldn't make a you know a definitive declaration about you know whether we're looking at something built by an extraterrestrial intelligence from this vague image anyway. But DPS and Molinar went back, looked at the looked at the images in the in basically file cabinets at the time, and realized that there wasn't a second image uh, as described by Soffin. However, there was another image taken days later, not hours later, that showed the face illuminated at a different angle. And uh, it showed that the face still looked face-like from, from this different sun angle. And that, you know, that it's not proof that the face is artificial, but it, it kind of mitigated against 
the idea that the face was just a trick of light and shadow. There are, you know, features that look like faces, typically from angles, typically not frontal portraits, which is what the face on Mars uh, appears to be. And that pretty much was the, the end of it until 1998 when the Mars global surveyor went into went into orbit and took a very um, a very bad image from, uh, from an angle through, through quite a quite a layer of haze to the atmosphere and NASA produced a rather a rather horrendous quote unquote ortho rectification of the feature um, which is uh, it was a flawed analysis for several reasons one of which is because this technique uh, typically works for flat features like craters say you know, when you're dealing with an elevated feature like the face on Mars, which is, you know, rather whatever it is, it's rather it's rather large. It has this distorting effect, kind of silly putty effect. In this case, it, it moved the center line of the feature, ascertained by the previous two images, way over to the to the right. So, you know, and it, it looks kind of interesting, and there's a degree of symmetry, but it doesn't look like a face. Only in 2001 was the frontal image of the face finally acquired, and uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting feature. I mean, it could be geological. It could be archaeological. Um, there are arguments in favor of both possibilities. One thing I've always been particularly kind of incensed about is that the issue of artificiality on Mars it has never been just the face on Mars. There are other features, both in the vicinity of the face and elsewhere on the planet, that I think definitely deserve a closer look. NASA's position on this is that, you know, there's nothing to see. It's all geological. But the people saying this are geologists. There have never been any archaeologists, anthropologists, artists. There have never been any disciplines involved with this. And there's never been a, a formal scientific study equipped to assess the surface of Mars for potential artifacts. So. Uh, I think it's, there's a degree of, of kind of a scientific cultural bias involved when um, when, you're, when a geological expert, a geologist, is called upon to make a determination about a feature that, in all probability, is going to be extremely old. In the case of the, the Martian anomalies, uh, no one's claiming that these are these are living, thriving uh, Martian facilities. You know, if, if well, they're, I mean, they're some real, people are implying that, uh, but I don't think they're as scrupulous as the rest. Yeah, there are a few people that you know. Well, you know, these are uh, they're occupied property, and I don't think that for a minute. If you look at them, they are. Well, for one thing, a lot of them looked like they were probably hewn or carved from existing landforms. And, you know, that's not unheard of here on Earth either. When you're dealing with a rock, you're dealing with a substance that's capable of being abraded down. And, you know, some people will argue that, oh, you know, he's waffling by saying that. He's saying that anything artificial of a sufficient amount of time will look the same thing as will look, you know, essentially as you would expect to a natural formation to look like and I would argue that there are there are actually quantitative techniques that you can bring to bear on this um, you know, for example um, artificial structures even even camouflaged in the case of vehicles in the, in the first Gulf War I know they used uh, fractal analysis and you can actually pick up a, an anomalous non-fractal signature from artificial structures or vehicles or whatever whatever you're looking for that are that are disguised to look like part of the surrounding terrain so and and sure enough this has been this has been done on at least a part of the of the Martian surface and the face incidentally registers as considerably non-fractal 
the most non-fractal feature in the region. So I've always found it interesting that here's a, here's a formation, you know, regardless of whether it's artificial or geological, but here's a, here's a feature that looks odd to the human eye and also is odd to a computer program that has that doesn't suffer from the you know, the uh, predisposition to see faces or, you know, make sense of random stimuli. So, there, you know, there, there are good arguments that the face might be an archaeological ruin. And um, I just don't think there has been enough study to make a conclusion one way or the other. Well, I think also there would be the tendency to dismiss it in the part of traditional scientific circles. But how does someone like a Richard Hoagland glom on to something like this? Uh, Hoagland, he glommed on to it very early. He was kind of one of the early people to, to become interested in it. And uh, the first edition of The Monuments of Mars, which is his book, is... You know, it's kind of the definitive book about the, the early the early years of looking at the face on Mars. It's unabashedly speculative, and that's that's a good thing because it's qualified speculation. And I actually think it's a pretty good book. Um, since then, his output has become increasingly. Mm, I, I I personally don't like it, but I think the conclusions that he that he comes to are ridiculous, and it's made, it's made the entire inquiry look pretty silly and pretty pretty paranoid and he's kind of he's kind of tugged the whole the whole idea of, of artifacts on Mars into well he's kind of, it's, it's almost like Eric von Daniken the whole concept of ancient you know the possibility that earth has been had been visited in prehistory by extraterrestrials and he, he got that idea and made such a farce of it that now no one you know takes it seriously because he's it's been um, played so so badly well, and, uh, Mac, do you think these guys do this because it's only in the sensationalized versions of these things that they can actually appeal to a wide audience and make money? Is that what's driving these guys? Yeah, I think a lot of it is if you if you know, sensationalize it, you can reach some people. To be fair, there's not a lot of call for this kind of research in peer-reviewed journals. There has been some. Mark Carlotto, for instance, the image processor, is probably best known for his Mars work. He has indeed had you know actual peer-reviewed articles on his imaging work on the face. Some of his early work on the original Viking data of the face on Mars was made the cover of Applied Optics. You know, so these aren't these aren't fringe publications. These are very respectable industry magazines, and there's nothing there's nothing um, frivolous or, or or obscure about his his methodology. However, you look at lots of quote unquote close ups by Hoagland, and they're obviously very heavily filtered. And he's claiming you know high, highly geometric is a, is a term that crops up a lot. You know, oh look at these highly geometric uh, ruins or whatever, and. Uh, he, he never describes the, exactly you know how he arrived at these images, what, what software he's using, and you know anyone who's ever played around with digital imaging, as I know you have, <laughs> you kind of wonder you know you know what's being introduced here and what's being taken out, and they obviously look very massaged and lots of noise introduced somehow or other. So you know there's a problem with a lot of the pictures he presents, and you know I can't. There are so many problems with with Hoagland's recent. Recent work, in my in my own opinion, that it's almost almost uh, hard. It's, it's hard. To, it's hard to even get it all out. What's his background? What qualifies him to even research this stuff? Uh, he, I think he has a background. Uh, I know he was a planetarium director. He served in some sort of um, as some sort of science correspondent during the moon missions. I, I think there have been some some rather dubious 
claims as well that have been hashed around. And, and I honestly am uh, not knowledgeable enough to dispute all of them or or, or come to defense on all of them. Well, the controversial character. Before we get really controversial, because it's only the beginning. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the podcast. On the Powercast, we have Mac Tonys, who is an aficionado of Martian mysteries and man about town. I always have to add that in because he likes to be called that, he told me before the show. And we'll be talking about his transhumanist later. Transhumanist. Transhumanist. Right. Okay, he's a transhumanist. And now we have another transhumanist, David Bietney, to ask a question. I'm a parahumanist. <laughs> That's well, I'm a non-humanist yeah. myself, but I didn't want to get into that. You're a chocolate donut, but we won't even go there. Now, Mac, about this Cydonia complex, because as you alluded to before, there are things that are located near the supposed face on Mars that are in many ways as compelling, if not more compelling. One of the things that when I first looked into this, I mean, honestly, I thought, well, this is just all just silly. I had that reaction myself. But one of the things that really caught my, my interest ultimately was this thing called, I guess, the DNM Pyramid. Yeah. Tell us a little about this, because in looking at the images that are presented about this, there does appear to be a symmetry to that thing that, that is very unusual if it were indeed the result of some kind of natural geologic formation. What, what are your thoughts about this thing? Well, I think the DNA pyramid is of special significance because it actually looks better. It actually looks more artificial seen in high resolution than in low resolution. Really? And, and yeah, and generally with a lot of these anomalies, um, they looked more enticing, you know, in the original Viking images. And we see them up close, there might still be some, you know, some anomalies there, but uh, they, they look they look more weathered. We're seeing them up close, you know, so we're seeing lots of, uh, we're seeing inevitable result of, of mass wasting and decay and, and, and meteor impacts. Things that you would expect, I should probably add, from artificial or natural formations if they're, if they're sufficiently old. 
But in the case of the Union Pyramid, pyramid it looks, if it's artificial, it looks especially well-preserved. And it's even more, we found a new axis of symmetry in the newer images that wasn't readily apparent in the Viking images. And there's this internal detail on, on, the, um, on the surface of the, of the so-called pyramid that is also interesting. It's a little rectangle. And uh, when I first saw it, I thought it was interesting because it's, you know, obviously a rectangle. There's no bones about it. And it's right there on the center of the, of the widest, not the widest facet, but the, the facet that's usually situated in the bottom of the photograph when you see it. And sure enough, it's shown up in subsequent images, so it's not, an, you know, it's not a compression artifact or anything like that. Uh, there also appear to be uh, buttress-like formations there on the edges. And uh, the overall feeling I get when I look at this is that, you know, this... If we saw this on Earth, I think we would dispatch archaeologists to take a look at it. No question. Sure. Um, but it's on Mars, so what do we do? You know, and we don't have a research climate equipped to deal with that. What does it all mean then? I mean, okay, I, there are some people that think maybe indeed there was a civilization on this planet that is is now gone. Maybe I, I guess what I'm asking here is, do you think there's a possibility that in reality? There was civilization there that may have, may have even left that planet to come to this planet? Either way, whether it was terrestrials who somehow made it to Mars and somehow lost all knowledge of this, of this previous civilization, or if it was indigenous Martians that evolved on Mars and may or may not have come to Earth at some point, or whether it was something else, whether it was extrasolar aliens that passed through our solar system and, and colonized Mars at some point. Either of those three possibilities changes you know, who, who we think we are. And the fact that it's a humanoid, I wouldn't say human, because it, it looks more simian to me, actually. Um, but, if, but if it turns out that this is an actual simian, proto-human, humanoid base on Mars, then, you know, what's that doing on Mars? Is that, you know, is it representative, is it, is it some kind of portrait of the, of, the, of the builders, or is it meant to commemorate humans on, on Earth, you know? Mm -hmm. The questions are very troubling. And I think the fact that it was a humanoid face um, has been the biggest impediment to non-biased research because, you know, there is a, there is a, a tendency to see, to see human faces and pieces of toast and stuff like that. Well, sure. And, yeah, I mean, there's really no disputing that. But in the case of the face on Mars, when they took closer pictures of it, um, an astronomer named uh, Tom Van Flandern had, had made some very specific predictions about, you know, if, if this is an artificial formation, we should expect to see secondary detail that's consistent with it being an artificial likeness of a humanoid face. And the secondary details he was referring to aren't visible on the original images. But strangely enough, when you look closer, they are visible. For example, there's a very pronounced eye in one, in not one, one side doesn't have a very pronounced eye. There's an eye-like feature. But on the, the side that looks the best preserved, there, in fact, is a very unmistakable iris. Well, not iris, but uh, kind of almond-shaped basin with a central protuberance that looks very much like a, a sculptured eyeball. And, you know, what are the odds of that being right where an eyeball should be? Well, is this a cosmic Rorschach test, or is it something that we're looking yeah, at objectively? That's that's the question, you know. Are we looking at, are we somehow projecting what we want to see onto a, a randomly formed mesa, or is this or is this a mesa that's been modified, you know, to, to resemble a humanoid face? Uh, one thing that is... It is interesting is that this, the face looks like a face seen from the surface as well as from above, and that's significant. 
because again, if, if this was a wholly, a wholly natural, wholly with a WH, not just the H, <laughs> but if this was an entirely, I should say, natural ph- phenomenon, you would expect it to not look like much from the surface. You'd expect it to look like something from one angle. Um, but again, as those, as those early images from different sun angles reveal, this thing is space-like from multiple angles. And um, that's not to be expected from uh, from a random phenomenon. So, you know, again, is this proof that the face on Mars is artificial? It's, no, it's not. But it's a compelling puzzle. And I think I think mainstream science should be brought to bear on this instead of the instead of the very strident uh, uninformed dismissals that we were typically treated to. All right, but what other particular mysteries or geological formations on Mars do we know about? How many or, or which ones? Which ones seem to be the most significant and the ones that some people say may be related to life? There's one, uh, there's a formation called the called the cliff, and I think that was a term given to it by, it could have been Hoagland uh, in the early years, but it's a formation that's actually shares the same axis of symmetry with the face, and it's very close, you know, relatively, but it's perched on a crater rim, and there are actually a couple features on Mars that have this characteristic in that they're tall features, they're large features, and they're right next to craters, and the ejecta blanket from the impact extends past the object. Well, if, you know, if if this was a, a big rock from space that slammed into the surface, you would have expected the um, this formation to have been, you know, obliterated. Uh, instead, it looks, you know, pretty pretty intact. So one argument is that, well, you know, this formed after the impact, but, you know, how does that happen? One, one possibility is that it was constructed, you know, maybe even using the, the material uprooted by the impact. So there's a... There's a um, uh, a feature called the crater pyramid, uh, which is kind of a it's a passable pyramid, not as not as well defined as the DNM, but nevertheless I think interesting. Um, perched on a crater rim that I think probably deserves a, a closer look, uh, as well as the cliff. And uh and there's some smaller scale things too. Um strange kind of spiky looking things sticking up out of the soil uh, at various points. Uh, lots of lots of pyramids and and some of the pyramids to be sure I think are probably um, probably natural. A three-sided pyramid, for example, is relatively easy for wind to form, but the five-sided pyramid is a little harder because if the wind is coming from it from different angles over a period of you know many thousands of years, you'd expect it to be abraded into a more or less cone shape after a while. You wouldn't expect it to retain these facets. And that's what we see in the Cydonia region, interestingly enough. So it, it forces me to wonder if Cydonia is simply the most well-preserved, you know, aspect of, of whatever kind of civilization built these things, you know, if indeed it was built, or if it's simply, um, if it was the equivalent of a kind of uh, enclave, you know, if whoever built this stuff deliberately built in, in a small area. And to me, that would suggest that we're dealing with it. Uh, an intelligence with pretty finite resources. You know, obviously they didn't terraform the entire planet, or if they did, it got wiped out. You know, well, the other thing point. here is, if Mars, the surface conditions becoming inhospitable to life, one would expect they would either move to other parts of the planet or go inside in yeah. caves to retain their civilization. So. It could be, although we may not see external evidence of it, that there is an internal Martian civilization. Once again, the Phoenix probe ain't going to see it, folks. 
No. Unless they just stand out there and wave. Hey, look at us, Earthlings. We're extraterrestrials. Do you see us on your cameras now? You know, uh, you got to hope that extraterrestrials are not as goofy as humans and they they wouldn't do this. I'm just saying you have to hope. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I hope they they would. Well, with the the pace that we're getting there, they could probably do it. And we still would get there for 50 years. Yeah. So now, maybe we deserve to be uh, to chide, be to be chided a little bit. I don't personally think that there are aliens on Mars now, uh, but I think I think there's a I think there's actually a decent possibility that there could have been uh, a form of advanced advanced life, a form of intelligent life there at one point. And yeah, I think you're right about going underground. Uh, that's a very that's, that's what we do. Um, Mars doesn't have much of an atmosphere, but uh, going underground, you know, you get a radiation shield made from the from made from the soil. So, you know, I think if we if we send a colony to Mars, that would be on their list of things to do. Would be to uh, to get themselves as far away from the ultraviolet flux as possible. And you know, we know that there's a water ice underground. So, what better place to be? A question out of ignorance, Mac. Um, given that. Uh, Mars does not have plate tectonics. Does that mean there's no geothermal heat inside the planet? There's some, but not very much. There's been like Mars also lacks a very strong magnetic field. You know, it's it's Earth-like in so many respects, but um, in some respects it's it's very different. It has a very weak magnetic field, for example, uh, which doesn't bode you know very well for you know potential colonists because there's yeah. more radiation from space you have to deal with. Uh, aside from the fact that the atmosphere is not very thick, there's some internal there's some internal heat that, uh, and there definitely was in the past because you can see the evidence for it in the volcanic uh, chain. This the, the Tharsis bulge is the term that they use to account for part of the Martian surface that is riddled with these giant shield volcanoes, and one of them is Olympus Mons, which is actually the largest such volcano in the entire solar system, and. Incidentally, coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, it's pretty much opposite um, the planet. If you draw, you know, put a needle through the entire planet, it comes out of this huge circular basin called Hellas Planitia, which is almost certainly an ancient, extremely ancient impact, uh, the remnant of an impact event, and of absolutely humongous proportions. And, uh, you know, there's a possibility that if Mars was, you know, kind of an Earth analog early in the solar system's history, then the Hellas impact could have ended it. You know, that could have sent, you know, shot, burned the atmosphere up. That could have killed Mars in one stroke. You know, that would be kind of the smoking gun. And uh, so that's, that's definitely a, uh, a consideration, you know. Because if you look at Mars, you have to wonder, you know, was that it, it's, you know, relatively dead looking now, but it, it obviously wasn't always like that. Uh, you know, it's got every indication of having running water. Some data suggests that it actually still has very short-lived liquid water on the surface right now. In fact, I think it's probably probable that it does. So you have to wonder, you know, did it die gradually or did it die suddenly? And if it died suddenly, then it's imperative that we know why and how because the same thing can happen to us. Well, that's another argument for going to Mars and finding out what's going on, because uh, I think ultimately it behooves us. Well, certainly if a huge asteroid impacted the Earth, let's say something miles across, and impacted the Earth in the right place, I don't think people understand that, yeah, there's a possibility the planet would survive, but there's also a good possibility that it would end up looking a lot like what the surface of Mars looks like. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that there might be some remnants of things left, but... Essentially, the, the oceans would be boiled off. 
It's basically evaporated. I don't know if you've seen this anime. Oh, yes, I have. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? From Japan. Yes, that's the one. Yes. yes. Oh, it's man. Just, oh, yeah, frightening stuff. Oh, oh, oh. If you want to have nightmares at night, yeah, I'll find it. I, I actually was looking at it recently. I, I think I'll, I can find that the link to that animation. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. There is no nightmare in saying that we're exploring the mysteries of Mars with Mac Tonys, and we'll get on later to his paranormal research. And David is now looking for something online, right? Well, not not looking for it at the moment. I'll I'll post a link up on the Paracast forums. I actually know how to find it because there was a recent post on Metafilter about it, Mac. And and, uh, there was a post where in the comments section someone linked to that animation. And what's okay. even creepier is it's, it's scored with the music from Requiem for a Dream, which makes it all that creepier. It's like, oh, it's not scary enough. It is it is a truly, absolutely, stunningly frightening And very animation. scientifically accurate. They've got yeah, this absolutely. thing mapped out to the minute. Oh, almost. it's bad. It's bad. I mean, if, if that were to happen, I mean, I have to tell you, if that were to happen... I would want to be right at the point where that thing impacts the planet. I mean, just right there. Because if this thing were to hit, I mean, it's it's a miles-wide thing, and if it were to hit the Earth, all life on the surface of the planet would be gone. You know, just, yeah. it would, it's, a, it's a doomsday event. And the thing is that as you watch this, you realize that, yeah, this is what would end up would probably look a lot like what mars looks like now you know after maybe a few million years of everything settling kind of looks like that now now mac what do you think about this thing called the martian tubes oh the martian tubes you know like this is one of those things that i've been asked and and my initial like most people, the first one I saw was the one published by uh, Richard Hoogland on his website. Yeah. And it looks for all the world like some sort of uh, ribbed, translucent, worm-like thing. And, you know, it looks it looks like, oh, what is this? You know, some form of giant life. You immediately think of, like, the sandworms from, from Dune or yeah. maybe some sort of... Uh, vacuum train or something and it's kind of it's nestled in this crevice in the in the surface and it turns out that there are lots of these things these there's not just you know one martian tube they're all over the place and uh-huh. they just kind of ramble through these ravines and uh, the shape from shading work i've seen which is you know basically you compute in uh, it's an algorithm where you, you you tell the computer you know where the sun is shining 
and it, it figures out, it, it derives a, a topological model that you can look at from different angles. And these things aren't really tubes. Um, they're three-dimensional, but relatively sh- superficial, relatively shallow. And they are these ribbed features that are aligned with inside these caverns. And they, not caverns, but ravines, and they look—they look geological to me. They look like—they um, look like dunes, you know, uh, sand dunes of some sort that have been deposited at regular intervals. Which, and um, I know that idea when it was first voiced got a lot of derision, but you find similar features kind of wrapped around the sides of mesas and buttes in, in Mars. Cydonia, in particular, actually, there's lots of examples of this kind of thing going on. Um, you know, they, they can't all be artificial. It wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense at all. I mean, you can't outguess Martian architects, I suppose. I guess you could argue that, you know, all these things are artificial in there for some reason. Now, there are some linear features, some bright linear features composed of equidistant bright lines that I think are interesting. And, but they're distinct from the tubes. Now, the tubes, I haven't seen a tube that's been convincingly artifact-like yet. Okay. And, and you know that's just my opinion. I'm not a trained scientist. I know, I know the conventional scientific explanation is that is that they're dune trains. But also, you know, JPL's explanation for the face on Mars is that it's a, a hill, and I disagree with that. So, you know, without without having the requisite geological knowledge, I can't offer you an answer and qualify it and say, you know, absolutely. You know, maybe yeah, maybe, but- maybe there's an off chance. But I don't, well, I don't think so. Your opinions are just that, but I think we would consider them qualified opinions. And so, well, in, in that sense, that I've at least looked at, you know, at least looked at it from both angles. And I wish I had formal scientific training so I could put an official stamp on it. <laughs> right. Because it's an official stamp. Right. Well, but, but the point is, you're not jumping to conclusions, and that's something that in any aspect of the study of anomalous stuff, people seem so anxious to jump to a conclusion quick. If nothing else, Mac, you don't seem to do that. And and I think that is one of the reasons we value your voice on this show. Well, the tubes were a very polarizing aspect of this whole controversy. When those hit the net, uh, lots of people got very excited. Arthur C. Clarke, you know, just totally went on record. He said, you know, what could these possibly be? You know, I can't remember. I think he was leaning towards a form of life. He actually thought that, you know, maybe we were looking at some sort of fossil, fossil giant Mars worm or something. You know, stranger things have happened, I suppose. Well, maybe not. Shouldn't get too fossiling here. Let me kind of bring it down to the fact that we're going to concentrate this particular segment on Mars, the next one on paranormal, but I wanted to kind of go back to the investigation. We have the Phoenix Mars probe. Now, if you were in charge of NASA or you had some kind of authority in judging what kind of missions one should take, in light of these mysteries, the formations on Mars, whatever, the speculation, what do you think scientists should do to get to the bottom of this? Uh, I think we should send landers to the Cydonia region. In fact, you know, let's put one right up next to the face. That doesn't mean we're going to solve the mystery, you know, right there and then. Uh, but, you know, you have lots of people who talk about seeing, art, you know, what they perceive as artifacts around the, around the, uh, the rovers. If we could put a rover uh, in Cydonia, 
And you know, let's say Cydonia is the result of some sort of modification, some sort of artificial construct. You know, then maybe there would be some legitimate anomalies there. Um, the remains of some sort of infrastructure maybe poking up through the dirt a little bit. You know, there are indications of that in, in the, the high-res images. So we should examine those as closely as possible because we're going to learn about Mars anyway. As long as we're sending rovers, why not indulge the, the quote-unquote paranormal community a bit? You know, I know that obviously it's going to stir up lots of, well, lots of conspiratorial sentiment, but who cares? Well, legitimacy. They, they care for their funding. It's like we were talking about before. These, these guys want to retain a face of some level of, of legitimacy because that's what keeps dollars flowing, right? Right, but at the same time, I think that there's, I think that there's a kind of a, a public appeal. You know, the, mission, the movie Mission to Mars, which I thought was a perfectly awful movie, um, nevertheless, it capitalized on the face on Mars and Mythos, and uh, I, I don't see why a space mission, a legitimate voyage of discovery via probe, couldn't be any different. They wouldn't have to commit to any, you know, specific interpretation of the Sidonia region. In fact, they wouldn't even have to mention, mention, you know, why. But, you know, I think, I think a lot of people would be uh, tuned in and uh, very uh, ardent viewers on, on the web to see, what, you know, what, what we found. Would they be afraid to create that kind of tension, though? Yeah, it might be perceived as a bit conspicuous. You know, I, I think my interpretation from reading GPL's press releases and, and corresponding with, um, with, some, with some people within NASA is that they want to distance themselves from this controversy as much as possible. And uh, they don't want to do it through an actual scientific study. They they prefer to do it by offering condescending sound bites. And again, I don't. This is where I would differ from from Hoagland. Uh, Hoagland senses a big grand conspiracy afoot, and I don't. I think we're looking at bureaucracy and in, in, in action or inaction rather. Before we go off the mission to Mars uh, thought there. Uh, I just had to say, and again, usually Gene does this, but I'll do it this time around. Ennio Morricone conducted the music for this thing. Worst Morricone soundtrack ever. Ever. Instrumentation that proved that he must have been as high as a kite. Man, was that a bad movie. And, and I usually loved Tim Robbins in films, but I was happy, thrilled. <laughs> When he desiccated instantly, when that when that helmet shattered or whatever it was, he turned instant mummy. I thought, now that's the first good part of the movie I've seen so far. What a stink bomb of a film! Oh God, that was that was the only good scene in the movie, and that's right? because Tim Robbins' character uh, got off. But the tension yeah. was actually pretty good. That was some a good little. Yeah, little that was scene. that was decent, right? Yeah, but you know, just by the guy who, by the way, brought you the masterpiece called Scarface. And then how he does something like this, uh, it's it's almost paranormal in nature. <laughs> they were afraid to show the truth. The oh. truth shall set you free. Of course, then we take to the next step of the Martian mystery. Say we have the Martian civilization hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago. They see the planet is going to hell in a breadbasket, losing its atmosphere, whatever. And maybe they migrate to some degree to the caves within Mars. Or maybe they send their people to the third planet. Hmm. Now, you know what? I bet that that um, that crater that uh, that Mac brought up, I bet you that's what really happened there. I bet you that they had some kind of a massive asteroid impact and that and that took out the planet. I, I'm willing, you know, I don't know, just when you describe that, Mac, and in looking at this stuff and thinking of that animation that, again, I will provide the link to on the Paracast forums, 
I just think to myself, no, that's what happened there. That's what happened there, and, and they probably didn't have a chance. Next time you look at a, at a map or a, or a globe on Mars online or wherever, uh, you'll know, you, Hellas Planitia, you can't miss it. It's huge and it's circular. And it's so big uh, that I think it's easy to forget that we're looking at what was once a, a fairly well-defined crater. And, yeah, this thing is massive, you know. It, on, you know, on, on a scale of a Martian map, it's, it would be, like, almost equivalent to Australia on Earth. <laughs> so we're looking at a big impact. And, again, yeah. this thing sent a shockwave through the planet and produced the – this is a planet without plate tectonics, but it shoved so much material – through the surface of the planet that it created a chain of volcanoes on the opposite side of the sphere of the planetary sphere. That's absolutely fascinating. That definitely, I, I know what I'm going to be doing this evening is looking that up because that that would make sense then on so many levels. It's Grant almost Hancock actually wrote a book and included that in his thesis, uh, the Mars mystery. Uh, it's it's worth it's worth reading and it's got uh, it's got some interesting information on the on the Hellas basin. Hmm. Now, your personal opinion, Mac, and we have a few minutes left for this segment before we go into a more paranormal segment. Do you think there is any living organism on Mars beyond the microbe at this point? You know, I wouldn't. I'm almost certain that we would find microbes. I bet good money that that if we look hard enough, it might not be the first time we send a a, a lander equipped with the proper instruments. But, you know, it might even be, it might have to wait until we go there in person. But if, I, bet, I bet really good money that we'd that we'll find uh, microbial life. But I'd also bet money that we'd find something on the order of, of lichen or you know, some sort of fungus, perhaps. Mars isn't. It's not. It's not a nice place. It's not a vacation spot. But it's not as bad as we thought it was even ten years ago. It's considerably homier than than we thought, especially underground. It has all the ingredients. And even even if Mars suffered a, a instantaneous, more or less instantaneous, planet-wide uh, extinction-level event, you know, millions of years ago, then you know that that might not be enough to sterilize the entire planet. And also, I mean, you have to take panspermia into account. Uh, Mars and Earth both exchange several tons of each other's material every every year. So it becomes a tough call when we talk about you know the emergence of life on Earth if it originated uh, via meteorite and and were ultimately Martians. Conversely, if we find life on Mars, maybe it's from maybe it's from Earth, and only by looking at its at its genetic signature will we be able to come to any sort of uh, conclusion there. As a practical matter, is it possible to set up a real colony on Mars? We know this is something that's not going to happen for several decades, because I think the space program is so far behind in catching up with this stuff. Is it possible to put colonies on there? Not only is it possible, the cost of the Iraq War would have paid for a colony of 500 astronauts. And that qualifies as an, that's not a base, that's an actual colony. That's enough people to start a small civilization. Well, now, wait a minute. That, and that, let, figure, that figure takes into account launch costs, everything. Now, you're talking about the $3 trillion number, right? And climbing, yeah. Yeah. And not that I, listen, anybody who listens to this show knows that I like to call it the Iraq occupation or cluster beep. So, you know, we won't uh, won't debate the, the problems about that whole thing. It's, 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 it is probably the worst Worst foreign policy decision in the history of this country. I'd be willing to go on record with that one. 
It's interesting, yeah. too, as more and more people leave the Bush administration, they write books saying we no. were deceived. Yeah, no, 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 no. Don't start with the Scott McClellan stuff because, see, then people go, oh, the Paracast is not about politics. I don't want to hear about that. Shut up. But, but just to say the $3 trillion is going to be the cost over time for all the ancillary stuff that happens afterwards, in terms of hard cash outlays, it's probably closer to $600 billion. And the $3 trillion does not include all of the, what I suspect will be, class action lawsuits against the United States government and military from the Iraqi nationals who suffer all of the radiation poisoning from depleted uranium munitions for the next 500 freaking years. So we won't even, you know... The $3 trillion number may end up being very low when it's all said and done. Now, and Matt, remember, I'm, too, that we're just dealing with the public budget, not the black yeah, budget. Yeah, yeah, not the black budget. By now, the way, okay, so we've been talking for the first part of the Paracast, aside from very minor political excursions, which we won't get into. We've been speaking about Martian mysteries, about the need to further explore Mars and learn whether they are still there or whether they is us. And we'll get into more of the latter on the next part of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. The real question on the Paracast is whether Gene Steinberg has a life beyond the show, and that is of a questionable nature. What is not questionable is that Mac Tonys joins us for Hour 2. The first hour we talked about Mars research, Martian mysteries. The second hour we go home to find the crypto terrestrials and for those listeners who didn't hear the previous appearances where Mac talked about it what pray tell is a crypto terrestrial crypto terrestrial is a catchy term for those elusive quasi mythological beings also known as euphonauts and sometimes ETs the idea is that perhaps some folkloric accounts of, of little people uh, that have seemed to have this inordinate interest in abducting people and harvesting children and instilling a sense of missing time and things like this, that some reports might actually be accounted for in terms of, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a, sister, a sister species here on the planet with us. Far out idea, I know. Now, how did you get this far out idea? Well, it's not, you know, wholly original. The, the basic, the basic material there, that you know, the, well, the the hollow earth theory, for example, which which I'm not getting at. It's not a theory I uh, that really holds water. But the idea that the earth, that there's something, there's some unknown component to it that it has a hidden civilization, has a, a very long, long-standing appeal, uh, at least from a folkloric perspective. But you know, maybe there, maybe there's something to it, and. Uh, uh, I was I was very impressed with it, with a with a paper that Jacques Vallée wrote uh, called the Absurd Humanoids, and essentially what this was was a look at uh, accounts of of little you know apparent alien beings outside their craft gathering soil specimens and uh, you know alongside the road you know kind of the, kind of the thing that we would expect the Apollo astronauts to do. I mean that was that was kind of how we envisioned. Space exploration as people with instruments doing little, going about little, little tasks like that. Well, he extrapolated, you know, where this, how often they would be doing this. If you know, if these were just the ones that we happen to happen across, then you know, how many might there be? This would be going on for all the, all the time. And the number he reached was just out, outlandish, you know, and totally inconsistent with the prevailing wisdom among ufologists, was, which was that we were dealing with 
ETs, beings from another star system that were that were conducting experiments. And if such were the case, we you know we could reasonably expect them to do things a lot faster and a lot better than we're seeing. We seem to be observing uh, a physically real phenomenon that doesn't that masquerades as extraterrestrials, much as much as how the fairies of uh, you know of Celtic countries masqueraded as or interacted with with the human population. In other words, some form of intelligence that kind of appeals to the to the reigning mythological vocabulary of any given era. And in the 20th and 21st century, it's aliens from space. That seems to be the, the logical extrapolation. But I like Bully. I don't think it makes sense. I don't think it's adequately, uh, I don't think it's sufficiently strange. And it seems to me that we're being misdirected to make us think that we're dealing with beings from space. Well, and I started wondering, you know, who, you know, who would want to do this? Suppose we are dealing with humanoid beings. And that's not a given. Maybe this is something even more arcane. But let's say there are human-like beings doing this. You know, with these staging very, very theatric saucer sightings and and uh, abductions, maybe. You know, why would they want to make us think they're from outer space? Well, you know, maybe if they're not from outer space, maybe if they're right here from on Earth and have evolved alongside of us, but don't want to be bothered, don't want to be um, subjected to our brand of of scientific scrutiny. Maybe there are other problems which are far in excess of that. Oh yeah. Environmental impact, among other things, but you know one, that would be a valid reason for wanting to uh, throw us off the scent, get us chasing aliens from space when in fact they're much closer to home. And uh, there are many forms of uh, a civilization, like if civilization is even the right word, but you know there are many forms this intelligence could could take. But uh, the word crypto-terrestrial is kind of a catch-all. You know, it's kind of like uh, cryptid uh, from crypto-zoological uh, vocabulary. One of the things that Valet puts forward is the idea of these things being a control system. And uh, we've talked a little bit with Valet about that. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the notion that these are potentially something generated from the planet to... I don't know if the control is the right word, to influence our behavior. When I hear about the contactee stories of beings telling people, you have to stop polluting your planet, you have to start being more responsible with how you treat the planet, I think to myself, well, the only reason that I, and it's hard to assign human logic to something that's not human, obviously that creates a terrible paradox in all this discussion, but the, but again, the beings that the Damsky talked to pretty much were human. Well, yeah, okay. That's the weird thing. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. But right. I just I think it's funny because the, the Damsky, uh, the contactees talked to the space people were, were people. I mean, there wasn't anything alien about them. No, well, see, the thing about Adamski, I mean, I, I, I can't say I'm an expert on the Adamski case. I've seen Adamski's photographic evidence, and I think it's ridiculous. It's right. just not in any way convincing. So, I take. Adamski as serious as I take Billy Meyer. I just, it's, people are desperate for attention, and here they go. They'll invent any kind of nonsense to basically get the light of attention shown on them. That's fine. But when I think about, I don't even want to call them more credible cases, because I, I personally have all sorts of issues with the credibility of so many of the contactee cases. But we just see this underlying thread of, being better to the planet. And it makes me think, well, okay, if these beings were here on the planet with us, 
and our behavior influenced their reality. If let's say if we killed all the life in the oceans, well, it's pretty clear at that point that the entire ecological framework of this planet would come crashing down. I don't think that life would last a lot longer if all the fish were all of a sudden gone, or maybe over 25 or 30 years they're gone. And we know that just in terms of the depletion of the fishing stocks around the world, things are in a really critical state and not getting any better, only getting worse. If there's something on the planet living here alongside of us, then maybe the last thing they want to have us do is screw up the environment for all of us. You know, if you if you got a bunch of people sitting in a bathtub, if someone pees in the bathtub, everybody's hosed, <laughs> basically, you know, no pun intended. But, you know, might that be what we're seeing here? I mean, I'm not saying I believe in that. I'm just saying let's throw it on the table. Is Do you think, Mac, that there's a possibility that that's part of the control system that ballet refers to? It makes sense to me. It seems like uh, an existential thermostat, you know, uh, some something to keep to keep the planet viable. Because you're because you're right. There's this constant thread of of planetary stewardship, and strangely enough, that comes from kind of contactee culture as well as from the more recent intrusions of the so-called greys, which are perceived as rather malevolent at times. Right. So you got very two different types of beings, and you know whether they're objectively real or not might be besides the point. They're both they're both uh, giving voice to this sentiment that we need to uh, get rid of nuclear weapons, for example. Well, I mean, while I'm talking about that, I suppose I should probably mention the like the Maelstrom Air Force Base case, where this is a physical event. There's no question that something. Yeah. yeah, something dropped down from the sky, hovered over a sensitive nuclear installation, and this was just one. There are actually two that I don't know of where this happened, and all the nuclear missiles just started taking off. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you can you can look at that as as an anomalous event uh, that indicates some sort of intelligent control, um, but you can also look at it as a form of communication. Now, there's a very it seems to me that that there's an intent behind an act like that, and that could only be. You know, we don't like this this thing. We, you know, we're, we're uh, turn it off. And um, there was no there was no request. It was just simply done. It just happened. You know, without our permission. Events like this, yeah, they forced me to they forced me to consider that there's an actual physical basis for at least some quote unquote occupant encounters with a parent. The emphasis on the word apparent, I suppose, alien beings. Let me throw out just a crazy possibility that just occurred to me as we were talking about this. And maybe we go back to Dr. Carl Jung's book suggesting that flying saucers were part a reflection of our collective unconscious. Maybe Mother Earth is warning us. And this is a warning that Mother Earth sends to us, infringing on our subconscious but still manifesting itself as some sort of reality. Now, that might be a pretty crazy theory, but what the heck? You know, I, I like that theory a lot, and I have been leaning a lot more towards that in recent months than I, than I was when I started originally blogging about the flesh and blood uh, beings. Uh, it has this, there's a very good, very good book called Earth Mind, uh, co-authored by Paul Duvero, uh, talking about earth energies, um, seismic uh, electric fields that actually affect human consciousness and kind of kind of the upshot of what he gets at in a very speculative manner is that uh, maybe there's some form of uh, collective conscious that's actually generated by the planet 
and it can be viewed as, as sort of an extension of the gay hypothesis, I suppose. It's uh, or the Earth is not only an organism, but a, but a sentient organism, and that we are its neurons, effectively. And yeah, I, I like the idea that that perhaps this is not that it's a physical phenomenon, certainly, but it's not necessarily um, a phenomenon that an anthropologist would take on. You know, that maybe this is something more nuanced, more. I hate the word, but more psychic or psychical, taking place on a level a level of reality that we really don't acknowledge, that we really really not prepared to acknowledge. Uh, now, indigenous cultures seem to have acknowledged it, um, and that's where I think the work of Terence McKenna and Graham Hancock and even Daniel Pinchbeck comes into comes into play, because uh, you know we look at the Greys and we, we find these uh, very very similar entities cropping up in in world cultures, you know, depicted by uh, shamans, who you know have have actually established some sort of rapport with these things. Now you know, we Western science you know looks at this and says you know these people are under the influence of some bizarre chemical, but nevertheless the parallels are very striking. If you can get this experience through ingesting the chemical then how do you account for people having remarkably similar experiences without ever having been exposed to psilocybin or something like that? Is it through uh, some, some form of ambient geoelectromagnetic field or, or something else? It's, it's, a, it's a puzzle that keeps, it's just kind of a, a snake biting its tail there. But I don't know where the originating, I don't know where the originating intelligence resides. I'll tell you if what, there, before there with the snake bites our tail. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for nineteen ninety-five, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for nineteen ninety-nine, just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item Paracast Offer 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Mac Tonys on the Paracast, and we covered Martian mysteries, Mars exploration on the first part. Now we're talking about crypto-terrestrials, our interaction with other races that may be terrestrial in nature. David, you want to throw in a question here? Well, actually, uh, there was a comment when you brought up uh, the, the whole Gaia thing, uh, a book that I had read this year, which thoroughly spooked me, Mac. I, I highly recommend this. If I know you, the one you know, you're going to say. The Revenge of Gaia. Yep. <laughs> James Lovelock. Oh, my God. That was one of the most terrifying horror books I've read in my life. Yeah. It's really scary. Um, Lovelock doesn't pull any punches. And he shouldn't because he's. Ex- I, I, I believe he's exactly on target. I think he is, uh, too. And, and if you really want to get depressed, go out and read The Revenge of Gaia, and you'll just lose sleep for a week. And you won't have children. And you'll go <laughs> And you'll go hide in a cave because, I mean, according to Lovelock... It's a book uh, and a contraceptive. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is. I, I mean, he basically states in there that by 2100, you know, he feels that there's a good likelihood there'll be a die-off of a vast majority of the humans on the planet. I mean, I think he, he puts the number in there that he expects 2100 to see a, a, a global population of about a billion people. That's that's one-sixth of what we got now, not taking into account where I think humanity is supposed to peak around 9 billion somewhere in what, you know, in the, in the, in, in, towards 2020 or something? Those I mean, totally unsustainable numbers. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I, there's been lots of criticism of, of Lovelock as being some sort of absurdist scaremonger, but wh- why would we expect... Why wouldn't we expect a die-off at this point? I mean, there was, well, a, there was a very heated exchange between uh, Whitley Strieber and, and Pinchbeck regarding the whole issue. Of yeah, I heard that. Die-off. Yeah, it was kind of silly. But uh, Strieber did make the point, you know, this ultimately this is an issue of numbers. You know, there's only so many sustainable resources on the planet, and you reach a point where they're not there anymore. Now, that doesn't preclude the possibility that we can come up with... with radical technologies that can solve this and uh, that's the source of whatever optimism I can summon is that is that humans are smart and when they start feeling the heat they can come up with, with things we can outdo ourselves right right and I think that's kind of the whole the core philosophy behind transhumanism is that you know we need to transcend our you know our biological limitations because our our evolution our continued existence demands nothing less but on the other hand um, you know, we could be incapacitated at a, at a stage where that precludes those kinds of advances. So well, and then there's a scary proposition. Absolutely. And then there's the reality of politics, like we were talking about before. I mean, you know, even if new technology surfaced, who says that they're going to ever reach market? And then beyond that, I mean, one of the problems that I always see with the idea of like the the fringe element talking about, you know, limitless energy. You know, the zero-point field energy device. Look, energy for free. What do people think that's going to result in? Okay, so now you have, let's say you found something that is more energy efficient than oil. Okay, great. That's not going to make food out of thin air, folks. That's not going to make fresh water out of thin air either. And as far as those things go, we have finite amounts of those resources on the planet. So now if 
everybody had a little shoebox-sized device that provides them with free energy, we're going to see the if people indeed had you know the equivalent of a shoebox free energy device, right. you could reasonably expect people to start uh, moving into space in increasing increasingly meaningful numbers. And you know if you do that, then you know the asteroids aren't that far away. Well, plenty of materials there. Moon, plenty of you know Mars. Lots sure. Of ice. We're just talking about that. Sure. If sure. we had free energy, I, one of the principal purposes for it, in my mind or to my mind, I guess, would be to move into space in meaningful numbers and and start utilizing the resources there because, I mean, they're in our backyard. And that could possibly, that could possibly turn the tide in our favor. And All right. I, uh, I'm I'll thinking of the idea that All we right. have to colonize space. Well, if we're going to survive as a species, yeah, you know, every every species faces its its final moment when its star dies out. Now, at that point... Either you have utilized technology to get off your planet and colonize other planets, or that is the end of the species. That's it. You don't survive that. Right. You know, your, 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 your planet goes up in a, in, in, in a big ball of flame and it's all over. At that point, you better have colonized space. I just wonder if, let's, let's, let's say everybody had that free energy device, is that going to move their minds forward in the same way that it will move their greed forward? I don't know. I see... I'd like to think that this would perhaps create a paradigm shift, not to use those words gratuitously, but it would create a paradigm shift in the way that we think about our role on this planet. At the same time, I think, uh, guys, there's a good possibility that that limitless energy device would mean that all of a sudden we would turn into uber consumers and we would just go on this crazy orgy of consumption that you know, would, would even make the end of the species happen even quicker. Because, I, I mean, one of the things that's clear to me, and I'll just say this and I'll catch the heat for it, our technology, the, the rate of development of our technology has far outpaced the rate of our mental, emotional, and spiritual capabilities to utilize that technology in an appropriate way. And I think if you threw a free energy device into the mix at this point, it would be like giving a drunken monkey, a 25-pound bag of cocaine, and expecting something useful out of the end of it. So when uh, Ray Palmer said flying saucers are here to make us think, what was he talking about? Uh, well, maybe he was right, but I don't think it's working. That's all. Well, I mean, maybe it's working, but it's working on a level that, of necessity, is below conscious perception. Maybe this is, you know, kind of, this is getting back to, you know, Young's idea. If, if, we, if we were consciously thinking about, you know, the, the meaning behind flying saucers, assuming there is one, that, that might defeat the purpose. Maybe this is something that runs in the background. And historically, that's what it's done. It's always been, you know, it's never been part of workaday reality. Uh, the little people, the, you know, whatever, right. whatever, whatever uh, some, world, some uh, given culture refers to these things. But they're there, nevertheless, kind of lurking and lurking in the focal of like some sort of computer program running in the background. So it makes me wonder if this is some sort of stimulus that's content to remain occluded. Well, the question also is: Is it a computerized program and not living creatures that there is at the heart of it? And this even goes back to Star Trek episodes, I suppose. There is actually a computerized force that's sending out all this information. Actually, sending out these experiences, generating them, whatever. I wrote a, an article. There's a book forthcoming called Dark Lore, uh, Volume 2. The, the last one was last year. And uh, that's the thesis behind my, my article, my, my essay, is that UFOs are 
part of a post-biological intelligence uh, that kind of saturates a galaxy once a civilization generates it. And it, uh, it kind of insinuates itself into, into a, given, a given planetary niche and is very, uh, encourages a civilization or species to develop at the same time that it kind of subtly tweaks its rate and kind of acts as, as, the, as the control system that Belay talked about. Speculative mm-hmm. stuff, you know, sure, but it, yeah, it's kind of along the same lines of what you mentioned. Kind of a, a computer, a computer program, a very fancy one, a very an intelligent one, one that would almost certainly qualify as as aware, I, I suppose. But artificial intelligence, yes. Yeah, an AI of, of, a, of a sort. You know, imagine a very advanced AI that we might build 400 years from now and extrapolate that to millions of years from now, you know, something that's actually flooding out through space and utilizing every resource that it's disposable to, to replicate itself and, you know, seek out new, seek out new life. And new civilizations, new civilizations yeah. to only go where no man has gone before. Yeah, so that's, that's basically the idea there. And, that's, and I deliberately wrote that as an alternative to, the, to the, the crypto-terrestrial idea in which we're dealing with an indigenous intelligence. It's like, well, you know, what, what, if it, what if it is extraterrestrial, but not the quaint, but big quote marks around quaint, but not the quaint interpretation of the ETH that involves, you know, basically human-like, humanoid, flesh-and-blood beings and fancy metal spaceships. Because right now, I don't think that's where, that's not to say it hasn't happened or, or can't happen, but right now, to use ourselves as an example, and we're the only example we have, I don't think that's what is going to happen. I don't think that's what's in store for us. I don't think we're going to visit uh, distant star, star systems in biological form. I think it's impractical. But what about warp drive and all that other stuff? You know, going through space. That would change things. Wormholes. That would definitely change things. Wormholes. Sure. If if, sure. if we achieve that, if we can do that, that's a, an unknown factor at this point. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, but we we really only have the sort of most cursory idea of how a human body would hold up in space over a long, long uh, um, amount of time. I mean, right. We 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 really don't know at this point, and. I mean, some of the things that we do know about human beings in space, there's this tremendous muscular mass, there's bone mass loss. I think it, it's reasonable to assume that we'd have to be thinking about a genetically engineered variant of human beings that would be up for that trip, which, of course, then, we I think on some levels, when we think about things like the greys or some of the beings that have been reportedly seen, that they do appear to some extent to perhaps be genetically engineered beings for that kind of application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the greys, a lot of times, a lot of the reports almost suggest kind of a Swiss Army knife approach. You have accounts of, you know, a hive mentality with different kinds. You know, right. You've got the long mantis-looking things, and you've got little drones. It's almost like you have a, it's almost like you have an intelligence that's passably humanoid, but yet specialized for different different contexts. Well, maybe they are, be helpful if you're they are robotic the instead of physical creatures. But if you're mm. robotic, why would you even settle for for a, a human-like physique? Yeah, it's not efficient. It, it's not the best way to go. As far as the hive mentality thing, uh, you know, you look at, I think I said this on the show before, look at ants on the planet Earth. I mean, ants really, in many ways, are the most successful species on the planet in terms of biomass. Um, you know, compared to us, if it was a fair fight between humans and ants, we don't stand a chance. You know, they outweigh us two to one. And, it, and it's a, you know, the ant colony 
is a study in efficiency. I mean, I, I suspect there's a good chance that um, the species that have achieved a certain level of technological sophistication that are based on the hive mentality, essentially insects with technology, would be, I think, a much more efficient way of making maximum use of the technology versus highly individualistic, highly emotional human beings. Well, then maybe there's the assumption here that these creatures, whatever they are, are based on insects, an insectoid life form. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos. And it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog. The world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great. Super safe with no caffeine fresh. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. On the PowerCast, we have McTonies focusing on crypto-terrestrials, the possibility that UFOs and or related paranormal events are triggered by beings intrinsic to this planet. Wait, hold on, I think David Icke is on the phone. <laughs> and, and he's definitely drunk, and he wants he's to talk to you, Chief. <laughs> um, well, now, i got to throw something out, just not to change the subject. I know, Mac, that in recent months you have been blogging on SETI's website. Well, it's it's a SETI website. It's not SETI's website. It's not. It's okay. So it's an yeah. advanced thing. Okay. Understandable misperception there. It's uh, okay. SETI.com, and the SETI Institute of Seth Shostak and Joe Parter is actually SETI.org. So yeah, that's that's the that's the distinction there. Okay, but but there's but, is there some connection at all? No, no, it's a commercial. It's a commercial website, and they have some SETI and astronomy resources, but it's not affiliated with the actual oh. SETI Institute, well, which I, is great right because I can. I don't have. Uh, I'm not censored, <laughs> which I imagine I, I probably would be if, by some strange chance, I was actually blogging for SETI.org. See, I was going to ask you then what you thought about the chapter in Stan Freeman's new book, Flying Saucers and Science, he has a chapter called The Cult of SETI. And, oh, I've uh, read the book yet. I'm familiar with his with his views on, on uh, SETI. And he has points. I, I agree with him. 
one one thing I'm very disillusioned with SETI about. I have nothing against the radio search for for ET signals. I I support it, but I don't understand why. Well, I guess I do understand why, but I, I don't appreciate the fact that the SETI senior administrators bash the UFO phenomenon and researchers thereof so frequently and so vehemently and so ignorantly. I mean, it's obviously political, but is it really necessary? Well, to, to which I would say, if you're talking about those guys, I don't want to say the name, but I have to now. I guess recently, uh, 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 Seth Shostak had some show where his esteemed guest was Calcorf. That's exactly <laughs> I mean, what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, so to have on that psychotic lunatic the K word ladies and gentlemen oh, please no, forgive he, us he had him on some it was like on a radio show I think and he had a Sunday there you That's go the name of it there in, you in go. other words it doesn't matter who you have on that show but if you agree that Roswell was Project Mogul hey we need you yeah I mean you know boy talk about <laughs> screwing up your own credibility man I mean that's at that I point that it's pretty like, funny actually yeah no it was definitely entertaining but then, I mean, you know, does that mean that Shostak is a brainless twit? Did he, like, do any due diligence on his guest? I don't what, think what are we so. talking about? Jeez, <laughs> oh, I mean, at that point, you got to wonder. And that's something that I have to tell you guys. In the age of the Internet, where you can go and type someone's name into a search engine and come up with all sorts of stuff. And, yes, it's the net. You know, everything is up on the net. Sure, but with a little bit of... I don't know what's the term I'm looking for. Uh, intelligence and just and, and just thirty seconds of your time. Yeah, you can figure out that. Gee, Calcorf, if you've got a serious show that's trying to be rational in its approach to a topic, and you're talking about UFOs, the last person you want to have on is 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 Crazy Corf. It's like, what are you doing? Well, I think that's what Friedman is getting at with calling SETI a cult. It you know it reinforces its own its own beliefs at the expense of, of denigrating others, and it will go to really any length to do that for reasons that have very little to do with science and everything to do with you know, getting, getting funding for, for SETI and, and keeping public interest stoked. Well, then again, if they were using radio telescopes and actually got signals that were clearly intelligently controlled that came from elsewhere, how would they even handle it? Could they emotionally cope with it? That's interesting because, you know, it's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, we don't hear much about what would happen if they actually found one. We don't hear much about the interpretation of extraterrestrial signals. We hear about, you know, searching for them because it's almost like that's, you know, they expect to keep searching for them as long as they have, you know, as long as they possibly can, which obviously is what you need to do because we haven't even started to look. Um, you know, people who write SETI off as a failure, perhaps we should wait a few a few thousand years before we pronounce SETI a failure, because we haven't even started. And Wouldn't you know, that our, assume, our though, if still just there was evil. really an intelligent race out there that wanted its content, its radio content, its transmissions? We would know. There was someone out there that explicitly, emphatically wanted anyone in earshot to know, you know, without any... I think we would know. Yeah. Yeah. They, okay. It, it subspace radio. Let's use subspace radio. By the way, the science fiction concept of subspace radio, which I guess is radio waves that are somehow transcending the speed of light, is that possible? Is that more into the wormhole stuff? Well, the closest I can think of is maybe quantum entanglement. 
where you have twinned quantum particles that you'd have to separate physically. Um, but once you've done that, you can actually transmit information, if transmit is even the right word, instantaneously. Uh, there, there are problems with it, but theoretically, I think you can do it. I think that there is a way you could do that. And, of course, there would be nothing to intercept if there's some sort of a galactic civilization communicating through quantum entanglement. There are no signals to intercept because you know, the, the twinned particles are the same particle on the quantum level. Isn't that predicated the SETI exploration on the belief or expectation that we will be able to detect intelligent signals from elsewhere, that they will be communicating in a way that we can understand using technology that we can discern, and that seems to be going against logic. Assuming the civilization is way in advance of us, if they are at our level, maybe they would. I don't know. I think if we receive a signal on a, on a radio frequency, I think it will be almost, let's say we received a radio signal from, from uh, the very large array tomorrow. I would bet... I don't know, a large sum of money if I had one. I bet my new laptop that I've been telling you about. Well, that's not that a large sum of money be... because you didn't buy a Mac. <laughs> Mac? Your guy named Mac, he doesn't buy a Mac. Back <laughs> off, leave him alone. Jeez. <laughs> it's a transhumanist, get it straight. I'm sorry, go ahead, Mac. I would, I'd bet my new laptop that it would be a signal, if we got a radio signal, that it would be sent to us from a civilization that was that was condescending, that was deliberately dumbing itself down for uh, the new kids. I don't think they've truly advanced ancient civilizations in our galaxy, and I think there probably are some, probably not as many as Carl Sagan assumed. But nevertheless, you know, even one or two, if they start expanding, you know, like through space and, and you know, even colonize just a handful of the star systems, that kind of makes up for the for the, the relative dearth of uh, of the of the millions upon millions that Sagan talked about. about well, you know, the other thing about this is that the theory that there is some kind of advanced civilization intrinsic to this planet yes. does not eliminate the possibility of civilizations in other planets and other star systems, nor does it mean that this civilization that might be here now didn't come from out there. Exactly. Yeah, it's not mutually, the theories are not mutually exclusive at all. Uh, we could be dealing with an indigenous intelligence of whatever of whatever may form. At the same time, we could be receiving visitors from real real alien beings, and and some it's and it introduces an interesting signal to noise problem. We deal with all these sightings of of a ferret spacecraft. Uh, some of them might be diversions, and some of them might be authentic authentic space spacecraft or or probes or vehicles. Who knows? Cases like Roswell, I almost hate to say it because there's really very little to add to the Roswell debate at this point, I don't think. But um, if Roswell was indeed the crash of an, some sort of ET hardware, well, not even hardware, but if it was the crash of a, a physical UFO, you know, it, it seems very strange to me that it would be extraterrestrial in origin. Or if it was, I would argue that perhaps it was a deliberate plant. I don't know, I know Nick Redford has, has spoken about this, uh, spoken about the possibility based on based on some documents that he's, that he's unearthed that there was a, a sort of think tank. And uh, there was during the, um, started in the 1960s, I, I, I want to say, but uh, that's 
without Nick Handy to ask. I'm not sure. I forgot. I haven't seen the documents myself, but no reason to think they're bogus. Came to the conclusion that the Roswell crash uh, was was basically kind of a Trojan horse maneuver to fool people into thinking that they were dealing with something as simplistic as alien visitors. It kind of falls into Terence McKenna's famous quote that we're being lulled into um, thinking we're dealing with an alien invasion uh, so as not to alarm us as to the actual nature of what's going on. There's one thing I've come to believe, I suspect, in the last couple of years talking about this, is that the level of deception is very high on all on all sides of this. You know, when people talk about receiving signals from outer space attempting to communicate with us, I think about that, and again, not to bring up the movie issue, but the beginning of contact where you see the signals going out. And I can't think of a civilization that would be so psychotic as to want to expose themselves to us, given what we project out into space as the image of what and who we are. If you weren't a human being, I think you're looking in at this. You're trying to make sense of this madness called our media. I think the last thing you'd want to do is come here, uh, unless you were just coming here to watch the crazies go at it for entertainment. We like to think of ourselves as being highly evolved. And I mean, the reality of it is that the current technological era has only been going on for, you know, certainly, I mean, I'll be kind and say maybe three, four hundred years in terms of real technology, the stuff that we think of ourselves as being superior to everything else, you know, the, the, the electronic age, the electricity age. That's just a little over 100 years old. That's nothing. This idea that we're worthy of being contacted on a formal level, I think it's an expression of human vanity. I don't think it's realistic at all. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And another possibility is that if you come across a civilization as obviously primitive as, as we are, maybe you intentionally don't communicate, but you're secretly hoping that maybe this civilization makes it and uh, mm -hmm. becomes becomes wise and worth talking to maybe uh, a million years from now. Maybe we're being observed and we're considered kind of a, a seed. You know, they hope we make it, but if we don't, we don't, because we wouldn't be worth talking to if we did. Would they just zap us out of existence if we didn't make it? No, we'll zap ourselves out. Why waste the energy? <laughs> we'll do a fine job ourselves. Well, I mean, if you, if you interfere with a, a civilization so radically underdeveloped relative to your own, I mean, you're either liable to capsize it, and again, getting back to this idea of a you know, post-biological intelligence that's been you know, with us from prehistory, maybe we don't have the perceptual vocabulary to even properly describe it. You know, we, maybe right. we're existing side by side with some uber-advanced extraterrestrial technology right now, and we simply, our minds simply can't address it because it's so foreign, and we simply haven't evolved in an environment. We haven't evolved in an environment to handle cars. You know, our reaction time is, is severely compromised because of our technology, because we evolved to be uh, chased down by predators and to, and to escape and climb trees and things like that, you know. All of a sudden, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're cruising the internet and exposed to frightening re reaction times aboard high-speed vehicles and, and jets, and uh, this is all pretty novel and new at this point. You know, last year's model. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. I have, I have the phone. Phone's ringing again. It's Pat Robertson, and and he's getting drunk with Ben Stein, and he <laughs> wants to. He wants to contest your your use of the term evolution, Mac. He, he says that they both say. Oh, look at this. I have this new picture phone, and I see that Pat Robertson and Ben Stein. Oh, gee, they got, a, they got a dummy with a Nixon hat on it? Whoa. Is that an oxymoron or what? Oh, man. Oh. No, I'll, I'll just tell you. And they, they, they have a problem with your 
use of the term evolution. So I, well, just, I just had to add yeah, that. I'm, I'm an unapologetic evolutionist. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. have Mac Tonys, and you have been writing a book about your crypto terrestrial theories, blogging about it, of course, but we have a link to your blog at the Paracast.com website, but the book, how is it coming? The book is coming, little by little. Slower, obviously slower than I had originally anticipated, but I haven't uh, relinquished writing it. I haven't, I haven't uh, given up on it at all. And, uh, I, and I'm excited about it. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's a nice little thought experiment. That's how I tend to think of it. And uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not proclaiming that this is the, you know, the end to the UFO debate by any means, because it, it by no means is. I think it's an idea that's been kind of batted around in the in the peripheral periphery of ufology for a while now, in one form or another. I think it's, I think it's time that the idea was kind of was kind of examined again, but for no other reason than maybe by by looking at it and and playing with some of those ideas for the intellectual fun of it. Some other ideas might be kicked up and might might uh, cause some people to become interested and uh, and look at these mysteries anew. So that's kind of the the mo behind this uh, is is to get stir up some some fresh thought and and uh, and write something kind of deliberately well not deliberately. Um, provocative but uh, the idea is not without some appeal and it's I don't think it's been adequately addressed and if you know if people if people shoot it down for valid reasons that's great it will, will serve its purpose it's not it's not a threat to my ego at all if, if it if it fails on the UFO stage it certainly Max. wouldn't be the first year to, to fail <laughs> and probably won't be the last and probably won't be the last exactly so just not to change the subject I'm just staying with the UFO theme what do you think about the rash of episodes that's been happening in, in recent months the stuff that happened in Stevensville there seems to be a weird flap of some sort happening in Indiana right now yeah, any thoughts about this stuff you know I I really don't know what to think I haven't interviewed any of these people haven't been to these places I think there's so much noise, and I know I know David agrees from just the sheer number of you know photos that how easy it is to fake them. Oh, I know that the one guy lighting the uh, the balloons and wafting the candles 
You know, I, yeah. think that, I think that was pretty damning. I think that was the explanation for that. You know, I'm not I'm not one of those people. You know, you always hear oh, UFO believers, you know, the, the need, the want to believe thing, and uh, I don't want to believe. You know, when I hear about a UFO signing, I I'm interested, but but not in the fanatical sense. I'm interested because I just really look at it and try to get a feel for it. You know, one thing that that I think it might account for a lot of these sightings, or if not a lot, maybe you know at least some of them, are unmanned drones. And I'm not talking about the the Photoshop drones. Oh boy. Those Chad drones. Oh man, there's a new website set up apparently where Jeff Ritzman and I are, are like they're they're attacking us because we don't feel those images. Who's attacking the uh, owner of Above Top Secret contacted me and Jeff about this this week that there's some website set up uh, the drone researchers and um, what apparently drone researchers. It sounds like I'm telling you. I, I don't know yet, but okay. the people that hired these uh, private investigators out in in the Bay Area. Oh yeah, I remember that. Right to go look at the Capitola stuff. Do you know um, they actually had a story on Fox News about that? Yeah, Fox News, dude. Hello, Fox oh. News. Fair and balanced. Whatever. Fox News is pretty much the equivalent of what would have happened if Chuck Berry had gone on to create a TV channel. Okay. That's Fox News. Fox News is a nightmare, and I hope Rupert Murdoch's eyes fall out of his head for creating that nightmare. Okay, tell me back, David. Tell us what you think. No, 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 no. I hope I, <laughs> I hope Bill O'Reilly gets hit by a car and explodes into a thousand pieces. Though a quick death is not good enough for that prick. And I think that Fox is a bunch of crap. Now, getting back to the subject. Yeah, no. Apparently, uh, 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 we're being uh, personally attacked because we don't buy into these images and the thing is what amazes me and what really frustrates me is the complete lack of intellectual prowess of any sort being brought to bear by people at large by society at large to any topic at this point and i gotta tell you mac it's one of the reasons i know that i'm always thrilled when you come onto the show because your level of intelligence is invigorating it's refreshing it really is, it, and, and, and especially in this quote-unquote field where either you have doe-eyed believers who are willing to believe in just anything. They've got the reprints of that ridiculous poster from the X-Files hanging on their walls, yeah, and they have little shrines built around it. That's, it's the, like, that's the, the title of the new X-Files movie, X-Files, I Want to Believe, and I hate it. Is that the title of the movie? Seriously? That's the, name, yeah, that's the name of the movie. Like, the last one was Fight the Future. This one is X-Files, I Want to Believe. I hope Chris Carter gets a boil on his ass for that, okay? Yeah. That's I all I can say. I, I mean, don't. you know, what the hell is this? And, and I know that when the X-Files was out, I mean, I, admission, when the X-Files was in its heyday, I used to watch it every Friday night with my ex-wife. We used to watch it. Why? Because, actually, at the time, it was I thought it was good. I don't think it's weathered very well. I've seen some of the episodes in recent years, and they just don't work quite as well. They seem just overwrought. I actually had the opposite reaction to the X-Files. I didn't like it at all when it was current, but I can look back on it and kind of appreciate it from a cultural vantage point. Yeah. Uh, It was an artifact of the 90s. Then go on to Hulu.com and go look at episodes of Lost in Space. (laughs) <laughs> to me, that represents a lot of the current thinking of the masses that are interested in this topic. They're they're like they're looking for Penny Cartwright, and it just drives me insane. I'm looking for Penny Cartwright. What does that mean? 
she was great in a day. Actually, she's some photography days. I think she's a sweet woman. But and here's the problem. And I've realized in in recent last two years what the problem really is here. These topics that we're talking about are mostly consumed by people as entertainment. They are not interested in answers. They don't want to know the reality. They want sensational stories because those are more entertaining. And that's where it comes from. And there are a very small number of people who are looking at these topics, and I mean all the paranormal topics, trying to gain some level of understanding. And then you have people that go on TV promoting themselves as researchers, and they're just entertainers wanting a television deal. So when you cut away all of the garbage, you're probably left with maybe 30 people, 40 people on the planet, maybe 50, that are trying to look at this in a serious way. And I think with those numbers, I hate to be downer, Dave, but I don't think we're ever going to get any closer to the answer of any of this, of the underlying answers, or even hints towards clues towards possibilities of paths that lead us to the answers well we have this mentality of wanting to be entertained as a species certainly western society i won't speak for the third world but as a species it seems like entertainment is almost like our primary motivation in life and while that goes on we will not evolve yeah i'm a bit disturbed by our uh, willingness to sacrifice all ideals and principles in order to make sure that uh, we can we can drive down the uh, get in our Humvees, drive down the street to Taco Bell, which is of yeah. course a caricature. Flash, flash! There are rumors that GM will stop building Humvees. Really? Yes. Good, uh, because only uh, three people are buying them. No, that stupid, obstinate-looking, ugly, ugly vehicles. They're wait, wait, wait! Hold on! Hideous. The telephone's ringing. Hold on! It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Wait, hold on here. Arnold is on the phone. Jewel, I have seven hummus and I love them. And if you don't like it, I will punch your Jewish face and I'll be back. You know, Arnold gets credit. He was the first one to have one. And that was it was new and novel. I see so many of them now that even if they're fuel efficient, I wouldn't like them. Because they're, they're ugly. I've, I've actually been in one. They're, they're atrocious. Oh, forget that. They're incredibly uncomfortable. I've been in one. You don't even want to sit in these things. They're incredibly uncomfortable. They They feel tight. When you're in them, they're awkward to get into. Things are the size of small houses. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, getting well, into the it, cab it's like, is tight. The cab is yeah. low. The cab is tight. You ever got weird. into a Toyota 4Runner? It's the same thing. It's weird. The positioning of the seat, the way you sit in these things, they're not comfortable. They really aren't comfortable. And they're built yeah, they're, by crypto terrestrials to <laughs> confound us, to cause us to use up too much oil. Uh, Don't they have the shale oil in Montana? Jesus. Eight miles deep or something? I forget. You, better, you know what? We are now like making it so that Mac will never want to come back on the show again. Oh, no, no, no. no. I think we're making it more fascinating it. because he'll come on because he feels pity for us. Yeah, here you go. But real seriously, Mac, real seriously. Okay, so when, for example, Barney and Betty Hill were abducted by whatever, and they yeah. saw the star map, and the star map is showing... Zeta Reticuli or something like that. That was misdirection, maybe? Valet made made a very good point. Who's going to have a map inside of a spacecraft? Absolutely. There's no purpose. It's going to be embedded in the the guidance system. No one's going to see a map. Well, they're using Google Maps. That's how they invented it from extraterrestrial influences, of course. We know that. I want to believe. I mean, Google Maps didn't just come out here of whole cloth. It was based on alien technology. Didn't you know that? (laughs) 
I do now. Well, at least somebody but, yeah, does. I don't. You're right. The, the Hill abduction is, is a classic. It's one of the cases that I'm devoting. One of them is the Father Gill sighting, uh, the Hill sighting. I blow hot and cold as to whether it was just an Air Force trick because the Hills lived near an Air Force base. I know. Yeah, base I've, I've heard you mention that before. And I think it's as good of a hypothesis as any I've heard, actually. Oh, I could think be. Stan Friedman's on the phone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Uncle think the Hill Stan. abduction was an extraterrestrial event. I think it was a real event. I think they were physically hauled aboard something. What that was, I don't know. But I would, I, I'm inclined to think it was not E.T. Well, the thing I wonder about all these abductions is, if they're genuine, why do they repeat the same kind of research? Why do we see UFO knots always digging in the sand for soil? Exactly. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. Right. A true ET intelligence could have accomplished this a long time ago, and they'd be back at their home, home star system by now. Instead, they do uh, absurdly theatrical procedures, and I can't help but think that they're for our benefit. It's almost like they crave our attention for some reason. Well, and, and, and that brings us to the whole idea, of course, of um, quantum mechanics and uh, our creating the reality around us uh, actually to bring up metafilter again there was a fascinating link there today to i guess this austrian group of scientists that intends to mount some kind of a uh, of an experiment to prove definitively that we create our own reality but when you do send me it, send me it. i will send you that it's on metafilter.com one of my absolute favorite uh, favorite websites but, you know, the other side of that, of course, there, there are two things when I, when I consider that whole issue. One of the things is that we cannot assign any kind of motivation to aliens based on human perception. It's just not appropriate. And that's where I think that our attempts to try to understand a lot of this stuff just don't make sense. We, we just cannot assume that an alien species... If you read the, the abductee literature, for example, it seems so easy. They're here because they need to interbreed with us, because they need to produce hybrid offspring, therefore the abductions, <laughs> and therefore this, therefore that. It's all very simple. Yeah, but all they would need is one genetic sample. That should be sufficient. That's exactly right. That's what makes the whole conventional wisdom when it comes to quote-unquote well, abductions so absurd. No, but hold on. I don't think that's accurate. I think that certainly when you look at how, and, and not to not to assign human logic to another species of beings, but, you know, when we talk about human genetic experimentation, one sample is never enough. And if you're looking at genetic mutations, certainly one sample will not suffice. You have to look at a wide cross section yeah. of a species. Well, so there has you know, to be a limit. I mean, you can't have 10 million samples. Wouldn't, no, you know, actually, I disagree with that. I disagree with that because mm -hmm. one of the other things, I mean, look at how we capture, you know, a, a polar bear or a whale. And we tag it and we let it go and we come back to periodically check in on it. I think that from that point of view, you could absolutely come to an understanding that that might be what's going on. That's not an unreasonable thing, you know, That's and I'm not a geneticist. Well, so you have cross-sampling. I mean, if you think, think of statistics. You have a cross-sampling across a wide range, a cross-section of a species, and then you, you have that plot, and then you have the plot over time. Well, that, so of course, implies alien visitation, not something intrinsic to us. Well, it could be both. Okay. That's exactly right, Mac. By the way, I found the link on... Uh, on, on or, uh, I should have said either, but yeah, it could be both as well. I mean, it could be both. Okay, Mac, if people want to get in touch with you, they want possibly to check out your blog or tell you something, some information that might be useful in your investigations, where do they get a hold of you? 
They can go to my website, which is mactonies.com, very imaginative, uh, M-A-C-T-O-N-N-I-E-S.com, uh, and uh, that's got contact information and, and some links as well. Now, as far as your book, you don't have a timetable for finishing it, no. but do you have a title yet, a working title? <laughs> Again, very imaginative. It's called um, the Crypto Terrestrial, although I think Crypto Crazy is in, in, in close contention right now. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's Crypto Actually, the, the subtitle is more interesting. The subtitle is Indigenous Humanoids and the Aliens Among Us. So there's a little more to it than just the one word. Definitely more descriptive. Well, yeah. it does tell me, though, that... It's good to see different kinds of thought on the UFO enigma. I always think when I read a lot of the literature that we're stuck in a rut that dates back to 1952 and Major Donald Kehoe. We're still trying to do the same things that Major Kehoe did then, get the government to reveal what it really knows, deal with disclosure, prepare to be visited by the aliens when they deem it appropriate, and where are they from, and that's the end of the entire UFO mystery in a sum total nutshell. That's the Reader's Digest version that has been repeated, unfortunately, too many times. And I appreciate when we have people like Mac Tonys and, of course, even Alan Greenfield and Jacques Vallée and other people who feel that UFOs and general paranormal phenomena is a lot more complicated than we have been led to believe. And Mac Tonys, we appreciate your presence on the Paracast. We look forward to hearing from you again real soon now. Well, I appreciate being on the show. Had a good time. We always love having you on, Mac. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it, and uh, you guys have a good day. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.